Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 16. Last week, I began the religious history of ancient Egypt, covering their concept of the afterlife, the religious nature of the Pharaoh, and several of their deities. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm delving into the evolution of the religion, how their temples worked, and individual religious practices. So let's get started. Throughout most of the history of ancient Egypt, the people followed a polytheistic religion populated by an immense number of gods and goddesses. Among the most important was Osiris, god of the underworld, who I covered in some detail last week. The city of Abydos in central Egypt on the banks of the Nile. Well, Abydos was apparently associated with Osiris, as numerous temples and shrines were constructed there for his worship. Also, like I mentioned last week, the ancient Egyptian religion was not static, but changed over time. It appears their religion began in the prehistoric era, but like you would expect, there are no written records of this, and only archaeological finds that point in that direction. During the pre-dynastic period, they performed some rites while burying their dead, so there may have been a sort of religion and perhaps a belief in an afterlife. But curiously, they performed similar rites when interring their animals. There's some thought that this animalistic burial may have evolved, or even been the direct source, for their belief that some of their gods took on the forms of animals. More on that in a bit. As their civilization evolved, so did their pantheon. Early on, the semi-isolated towns and cities would concentrate on a single god and consider the others to be less important. But as trade, war, and government led to the linking of these distant people to a more centralized society, typically the major god of the defeated city would get incorporated into the lesser pantheon of the victorious. The end result, well, it's still early in their history, so not the end result, but it was that a few deities remained only regionally important, while a few others came to be important to the entire population. Then there was the early dynastic period, beginning around 3000 BC, and the unification of Egypt. And with this unification came what is known as the Cult of the Divine Pharaoh. Their god Horus, who was the first known national god, usually having the head of a falcon on the body of a man. I covered his parents last week, but as a reminder, Osiris, the god of their underworld, was his father, and Isis, who was considered the divine mother of the Pharaoh, was his mother, too. Next, and during the Old Kingdom, the religions attempted to organize a bit. Their priests of the major gods set about to structure the complex pantheon into groups. This was primarily accomplished by linking the various mythologies. It can be seen in the Aeneid, which connected important deities such as Atum, Ra, Osiris, and Set into a single creation myth. At the same time, the pyramids replaced older, less ornate tombs as the final resting place for the pharaohs. It's been suggested that the small size of the temples for deities 
compared to the ginormous pyramids provides a visual indicator for the relative importance of each, with the pharaoh being more important than the deity. As the religion organized, the importance of Ra rose. Only five dynasties into the kingdom, he was their most important deity, becoming essentially associated with the pharaoh, and this association would last for pretty much the entire history of ancient Egypt. About the same time, Osiris became the god of the afterlife. Then, the old kingdom collapsed, and with that came the first intermediate period. The collapse of the central government meant, for at least religious purposes, there was less state control over religious life. This unintentional loosening of controls meant the wealthy non-royals could also begin to participate in ornate funeral rites. These rites had previously been reserved for the royal house only. But this was not only limited to the upper class, it was a sort of, as one researcher has put it, a democratization of the afterlife, or at least their view of it. As you should know by now, the first intermediate period was followed by the Middle Kingdom, which began around 2000 BC. At first, Manthu rose in importance, but then along came Amen. Amen's spot at the top of the pyramid would last through the collapse of the Middle Kingdom, and even survived this second intermediate period. It was during the New Kingdom that he was joined up with Ra, becoming a single composite deity. And, since Ra had always been associated with the Pharaoh, so became Amen-Ra. Remember that Amen had traditionally been viewed as the god of the priest and Ra of the Pharaoh. The merging of the two at least showed the rising power of the priesthood. During the New Kingdom, there was increased trading with civilizations in Mesopotamia and Persia, which, similar to what occurred in their early history, caused the Egyptian pantheon to begin to include more foreign gods. In a similar fashion, the Nubians, who lived in what is now southern Egypt and northern Sudan, adopted Amen as their own. A significant shift occurred during the reign of Pharaoh Akhenaten in the 18th dynasty and therefore the New Kingdom. And he ruled from 1353 to 1335 BC. During his reign, he instituted a religious revolution that shifted the religion from Amen to the worship of Aten, aka the Sun Disk. Akhenaten also built a new capital for the empire in the desert at Armana, which is north of Abydos. Finally, he directed that the names of some of Egyptians' deities be removed from monuments, and by doing so, Akhenaten claimed only he could worship Aten, and the populace was then instructed to direct their worship towards him, meaning the people had to worship the pharaoh. Remember the word monolatry from last week? Well, this was it. Not one god, but one above the pantheon. It is thought that many people continued to worship the pantheon, though. And this was somewhat shown when, after Akhenaten's death, his son, Tutankhamun, yes, King Tut, went in the other direction, reverting Egypt to its previous polytheistic religion. Once again, according to Rabbinic Judaism, this was during the life of Moses. During the New Kingdom, 
The mainstream religion moved towards a more personal relationship between the adherents and their gods. Akhenaten's alteration reversed this trend, but only temporarily. Overall, the people began to believe that the gods were much more directly involved in their daily lives. Also, Amen, still the highest-ranking god, was progressively becoming the final judge of human destiny, and therefore the destiny of the country. As such, the pharaoh came to be viewed as more human and less divine. Also, the influence of oracles increased, along with the wealth and influence of the oracle's interpreters, aka the priest. It's thought that this trend destabilized the traditional structure of their society and contributed to the downfall of the new kingdom. More on oracles in a bit. When the Greeks, then the Romans, moved in, the pantheon of Egyptian gods grew to accommodate some of the European deities, and the continued trend of a less powerful pharaoh, well, it continued. Like I've covered, in the 4th century BC, Egypt became a Greek kingdom. When this happened, the Greeks kept much of the traditional Egyptian religion and set about restoring and rebuilding many temples. Then, and as commonly happens in polytheistic religions, the pantheons merged. Somewhat. With this merging came a new god, Serapis, a combination of Osiris and Apis, but also with the traits of Greek deities. Serapis would become very popular among the Greek population, but some Egyptians chose not to adopt the new pantheon. The personal nature of the religion remained. Similarly, and this is a bit unexpected, many began to have animals as their gods. Think back to the beginning of the episode when I mentioned about the funerals for animals in the pre- and early history. It's thought that the rise of animal worship at this time may have been related to the internal political uncertainty. More on these so-called animal cults in a bit. Finally, in this period, the worship of Isis, the mother goddess, reached its peak. She was thought to provide protection, magic, and personal salvation, and as such became the most important goddess in Egypt. The ouster of the Greeks by the Romans in 30 BC changed little for the religion, at least initially, and what had formerly been the Egyptian worship of Isis spread to Europe, albeit with a more Greek interpretation. Politically, Egypt was a now weakened version of its former self, and since the religion had a millenniums-long connection with the political, the religion weakened too. This was evidenced by temples falling into disrepair and their gods, once again, having only a small regional influence. And just for a second, I'm going to venture into the AD portion of Egyptian history. In the first century AD, Christianity spread throughout Egypt, aided by the erosion of the political-religious state. At the same time, Gnosticism, a religion that merged some Christian beliefs with outside influences, spread throughout Egypt. In 1945, many Gnostic texts were uncovered in the southern Egyptian city of Nag Hammadi. Then, in the 7th century AD, came the Islamic conquest of Egypt, 
In 641 AD, Egypt was controlled by the Byzantine Empire from Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. But in 642, the Rashidun Caliphate conquered the land and brought Islam along with them, a conquest that echoes to this day as Islam is practiced by the majority of Egypt's population, while a minority are Christian, mostly part of the Coptic Church. The evolution of the religion can also be seen in their writings. These include what are known as funerary texts. Now, I did a deep dive into their version of the afterlife in the last episode, so no rehashing here. But it's worth noting what were in the text and how that changed with time. It was these funerary texts that may be the most important and extensively preserved Egyptian writings. They were designed to ensure that deceased souls reached the afterlife, essentially a hieroglyphic mixture of an instruction manual and a map. Earliest of the funerary texts are what is known as the pyramid text. I touched on these a couple of episodes ago. Essentially, they are a loose collection of hundreds of spells carved on the walls of pyramids built during the Old Kingdom. They were apparently intended to magically provide pharaohs with the method to unite with their gods in the afterlife. Depending on which pyramid they're found in, the texts are in different arrangements and combinations, while a few of them appear in all of the pyramids. Then, towards the end of the Old Kingdom, the funerary texts changed, beginning to appear in other tombs and on the inside of coffins. At this point, they became known as coffin text and were left as instructions not just for the royals, as they had previously been, but now for high-ranking officials. Then, during the New Kingdom, new funerary text appeared. The most widely known of these is called the Book of the Dead. But don't let the name fool you, as there's no single book. The surviving versions are written on papyrus and contain a changing selection of religious and magical text. It seems that some individuals may have had their own copies of the Book of the Dead written specifically for them, possibly choosing the spells that they thought most vital in their individual progression towards the afterlife. The book was most commonly written in hieroglyphic or hieratic script on a papyrus scroll and often were illustrated with drawings showing the deceased and their journey into the afterlife. There was also a more standard version that was copied on papyrus and sold to commoners for placement in their tombs. Back to the coffin text. The coffin text included chapters with detailed accounts of the underworld and instructions on how to overcome its hazards. Now you've got to wonder how the writers would have known this. Anyway, during the New Kingdom, the coffin text led to several books of the netherworld, including the Book of Gates, the Book of Caverns, and the Omduat. These books were organized depictions of Ra's passage through the Duat, allegedly serving as an analogous description of the journey of the deceased person's soul through the realm of the dead. Like the pyramid text, these were originally restricted to the tombs of the pharaohs, but by the Third Intermediate Period, they became more widespread, too. The Egyptians used oracles to request guidance or knowledge from their gods. 
these oracles popped up on the scene during the New Kingdom. At least the record of them showed up then. They could have been around for much longer. Eventually, everyone was utilizing oracles from the lowest class all the way up to the pharaoh. They became so ingrained that they were even used to settle legal issues or to help royalty with decisions. And the actual use is a little strange, at least to me with my modern sensibilities. But then again, my sensibilities are often the subject of debate. Anyway, frequently a question would be posed to a divine idol while it was being carried in a festival procession, think parade. Not really, but close enough. The answer to the question at hand could be gleaned from observing the movement of the idol in the procession. There were also oracles that can interpret an answer from the actions of cult animals, the drawing of lots, or consulting statues. And about these statues, apparently there was a priest on the inside of these sizable carvings that would provide an answer to the question asked. Questionable, indeed. I'll explain Bell in a minute. Overall, the use of oracles and their connection with the priesthood gave great power to the priest who spoke and interpreted the particular god's message. Now, the next odd thing were their animal cults. At many temples and holy places, the ancient Egyptians worshipped individual living animals. These animals were usually chosen based on specific markings which were believed to indicate their fitness for the role. So, the patterns of their fur made them stand out and worthy of worship. It was thought that they were the physical manifestation of a particular deity. One such form was the Apis bull worshipped at Memphis, who was thought to be the physical form of Ptah. The individual bull would retain the title as long as it was alive. Other animals were chosen for much shorter periods. The animal cults grew in popularity in the later periods as indicated by the many temples that began to raise stocks of animals. From the herds, the priests would choose the next physical form of the god. And just before the Persian conquest in 525 BC, people began mummifying specific animal species as an offering to the god thought to be represented by the animal. Archaeological digs have uncovered millions of mummified cats, birds, and other animals buried at temples honoring Egyptian deities. It's thought that when a worshiper sought to honor a specific god, they would purchase a mummified, let's say a cat, from the temple priest and place it in a cemetery near the god's temple. So enough with the worship of animals. The actual practice of worship took on two different forms essentially public ceremonies and private practices. The state religious traditions included both temple rituals centered, usually, on a specific deity. There were also ceremonies related to the divinity of the pharaoh. Those practices concerning the pharaoh included his coronation ceremony, of course, at the beginning of his reign. There was also what was known as the Sed Festival, this was the periodic renewal of the pharaoh's power. Think back to when I described the importance of time and cycles to the Egyptians. The seasons, the Nile flooding, 
the daily transit of Ra across the sky, and the cycle of kingship. Well, the said festival was another of these, and, like many things in the Egyptian religion, it served the purpose of maintaining political stability. As for the state practices not associated with the pharaoh, there were numerous temple rites, including those that took place throughout the land, but there were also rituals limited to single temples or to the temples with a single god, and many of these were closed to non-priests, so only the priest and the pharaoh would participate. But commoners would frequently make offerings to the temple deity, and objects etched with prayers would be placed in temple courts. Some of these rituals were performed daily, while others took place annually, or even less frequently. It's thought that the most common temple rite was the morning offering ceremony, of course performed daily and throughout the country. During the ceremony, a high-ranking priest, and less frequently the pharaoh, washed, anointed, and elaborately dressed the deity's statue before presenting it with offerings. Later, and after the god had consumed the spiritual essence of the offerings, the items themselves were taken to be distributed among the priests. Let that sink in. The people were expected to bring offerings to the temple that would be presented to an idol. The idol would consume the invisible essence of the offering, and what was left over, which was everything, would then be distributed to the priest. In some versions of the Old Testament, specifically the Greek version of Daniel in chapter 14, there's the story of Bel and the dragon. Bel was a Babylonian idol whose daily offering was 12 bushels of flour, 40 sheep, and 300 gallons of wine. That's about 1,100 liters. Essentially, Daniel wagers his life that the statue was not eating and drinking a single morsel. It was all being consumed by the 70 priests and their families. Of course, Daniel is Daniel. He wins the wager. And, spoiler alert, the priests are executed for deceiving the king. So when I hear of the offerings at the Egyptian temples, I naturally think of Daniel the spiritual lion that he is. Back to Egypt. As for the less frequent temple rituals and festivals, there were many, enough for a few a month, every month. These festivals ran the gamut of simple with few offerings to the gods, many that entailed reactments of specific myths, and they also included the symbolic destruction of the forces of disorder. It's believed that most of these events were probably celebrated only by priests and took place completely within the confines of the temple. But the larger temple festivals, such as the Opet festival observed in the city of Karnak, frequently involved a parade carrying the god's idol from the temple to other significant sites, perhaps the temple of a related deity. Commoners would gather along the route to watch the procession and sometimes received a portion of the unusually large offerings given to the gods on these occasions. The other side of the coin were the individual practices of the religion. 
unlike the state practices. These were more related to the daily lives of the individuals. Unfortunately for us, the uncovered records of these are fewer than that of the state-sponsored rituals. What has been discovered tends to be from the upper class, and this makes sense, as they had the means to record their doings. After all, papyrus and the employment of scribes was no inexpensive matter. So, knowing that the records we have reflect the upper class also lets us know that there's much more we don't know. Channeling my inner Donald Rumsfeld. Specifically, we don't really know the practices of the middle and lower classes. With that caveat out of the way, we do know that the popular religious practice included ceremonies marking important transitions in life. These included birth, because of the danger involved in the process, and the naming of a child, because the name was held to be a crucial part of a person's identity, and of course, death. But I've covered that one enough. Maybe enough to make you want to speed up the process. Other religious practices sought to understand the God's will, or to seek their knowledge. Included in these were the interpretation of dreams. Dreams were perceived to be messages from the divine realm, which shouldn't surprise you given that Joseph was released from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis chapter 41. The commoners, as well as royalty and officials, sought to affect the gods' behavior to their own benefit through magical rituals. More on their magic in the next episode. Individual Egyptians prayed to their gods and gave them private offerings. Now, to be clear, the evidence of this type of personal religiousness is thin before the New Kingdom. Researchers theorize that this is because of the cultural restrictions on depiction of non-royal religious activity. Such restrictions were relaxed during the Middle and New Kingdoms, and this relaxation led to an increase in individuals participating in the religion and typically took the form of the belief that the gods would intervene directly in an individual's life. And they also would punish wrongdoers and save the pious from disaster. Individuals would utilize temples for private prayer and offerings, frequently praying in person before the temple statues or in shrines set aside for their use. There were also numerous local, smaller chapels, separate from the temples. These chapels were probably maintained by lay people, and some houses contained a small shrine in order to make offerings to gods or deceased relatives. The primary deities for the individuals were frequently different from the national gods, such as common in polytheism. These included the fertility goddess Torrid and the household protector Bess. In fact, these two apparently had no temples of their own. It should probably go without saying, but that hasn't stopped me yet. Anyway, the individuals often favored deities affiliated with their own geographic region or with their role or station in life. The god Ptah was important in the city of Memphis, and he was also the patron god of craftsmen. And that's probably as good of a place as any to end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll wrap up the religion of the ancient Egyptians. 
And before you write in, I know that last week I said it would be only one more week, but such are the best laid plans. As near as I can tell at this point, I have about 10 more minutes on the religious practices. So I'll start there next week, then hopefully begin the detailed history. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or whichever platform you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find it. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.